Anyway, if you've got a Bible, if you could turn to Luke chapter 11, uh, verses 1 to 4. Um, Luke chapter 11, verses 1 to 4. We've been going through Luke's gospel uh, for a year or so now, and we are in the Lord's Prayer now, and we've been camped here for a few weeks, and we will continue there. So let's just reacquaint ourselves uh, with this passage. Luke 11, 1 to 4. I'm reading from the New Living uh, Translation. And some words may appear, but... uh, You can just give glory if you want. Oh, there we are. Anyway, I'll read it to you. Once Jesus was in a certain place praying. As he finished, one of his disciples came to him and said, Lord, teach us to pray just as John taught his disciples. Jesus said, this is how you should pray. Father, may your name be kept holy. May your kingdom come soon. Give us each day the food we need and forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. And don't let us yield to temptation. Okay, so here it is. It's a very familiar passage for many of us. Uh, For many uh, reciting this at school or in other contexts, sometimes it gets drained of its meaning at all, the Lord's Prayer. Well, we want to, over these weeks, and hopefully we've been doing it already, uh, put back the meaning to understand what Jesus was saying. Because in many ways, this is the model prayer. The disciples come, teach us how to pray. Jesus says, okay then, I'll teach you. Here it is, the model prayer that you can pray. And we spent a few weeks, uh, kind of three weeks so far, and we've made it, by the, by the end of the fourth week, we might even make it to the end of verse two. Well, that's pretty impressive. Um, uh, but we're actually getting onto the stuff today that people think of when they think of praying. If, if I was to ask you, what is prayer? Most people would boil it down to asking God for stuff. That's kind of, it's an asking, you're making requests of God. And here we have in verse 2, we spent a couple of weeks setting the tone of this prayer. Who are we praying to? Well, he's our Father, and he's also holy. Well, but what do we actually say to him? What, do we, what requests do we make? So here we are. Father, may your name be kept holy, first request. Second request, may your kingdom come soon. So there we go. Jesus has done it. He's, he's met our expectations. There are requests to be given in this prayer. However, let's face it, this is a pretty odd way of doing things in other ways. While these are requests, they're not the kind of requests we might expect. I mean, we've no idea, I suppose, why the disciples came to Jesus and asked to to be taught to pray. What were they wanting to know? And why did they want to pray so much? Well, my guess would be that they wanted probably a more streamlined way of getting their priorities onto God's to-do list. I reckon that was probably somewhere in this thinking. It was probably largely about them. How can we get the stuff we want from God? How can we unlock God's favor in such a way that he will do the things we'd like him to do? However, as this makes clear... The primary content of how we should pray doesn't start with our agenda at all. Yeah, there are requests, but actually they're not praying for our things. Jesus straight away, right at the start of this model prayer, he's saying, well, what do we pray for? We make requests, but we're praying for God's agenda, not our agenda. It's may your name be kept holy, may your kingdom come soon. We are not the foremost thing in this prayer. God is. We are not the center of this prayer. God is. And actually, if we take a step back from the prayer, we could just see it up there. We'll see it's not just in these requests. The whole structure of the prayer shows this. The first half of the prayer is all about God. There you go, in verse 2. And then after that, it's about us. God's first, we're second. God's central, we are peripheral. When we come to God to pray, Jesus is saying, 
we must put God in the primary position and us second. And today what I'd like to do is I want to explore why Jesus has done this, because it is slightly, it's not how we might expect it to happen, and then look then at how we can pray like this. So why has Jesus done this? Why has Jesus put it in this order? Well, I think there's a very simple answer to that. Why has Jesus put God central to the Lord's Prayer? Well, I suppose the simple answer is this. He's at the center of the Lord's Prayer because he's at the center of absolutely everything. That's why he's at the center of this prayer. I think probably for us, if, if this is jarring to you, the jarring aspect of this order of things is not necessarily that God is there at the start. The jarring aspect of this is that I'm not there at the start. I think that's what's kind of thinking, oh, I want to be there right at the beginning. Now, whether you're the most committed Christian, there is here the most pious person in the whole world that we're, uh, we're privileged to have in our midst, or you have no religious faith whatsoever, I'd say all of us in our unguarded moments, when we have our knee-jerk reaction to life, when those things come up, we find that we've put ourselves at the center it's why, for example, where we can look on the news and we can see uh, thousands of people dying in that country over there and thousands dying over there and that happening over there and just kind of sit there and be, well, you know, it's a shame. And then something goes wrong for me and suddenly I'm like, God, why? Why have you done this? I think we assume not just that we matter, but that if there's a God, he should somehow tailor the entire flow of history to suit my individual desires and needs. And actually, when I don't feel he's doing that, sometimes I kick off. Now, I think when we think about this, the placing of ourselves at the center of things, it is, while it's normal in the sense that lots of people do it, it is totally, totally bizarre. It's very, very odd. Now, I haven't gone on about this any longer. A few years ago, I, I, wrote a, I wrote a poem about the oddness of the way we place ourselves in this place. I thought I'd just perform it for you. I thought that would be probably the best way to go. This I can do this. <laughs> this is going to be good. I'm not going to put a beret on or anything. Not that kind of poem. Here we go. <laughs> I'm, I'm one of six billion. I live in a nation of millions. In the city I live in, I'm just another civilian. I occupy a space and time that I'm making mine, but in a second in haste, I'll find I've been replaced. I'm a breath. Inhale, exhale, ex-pupil, ex-husband, expire. Then I'll be an X-man over in a cyclops blink. Till then I'll spin the world backwards using just the power in my left hand. Could it be I'm not the center of the universe? Could it be I got my vision out of balance? I take my place against the wall for God to do his worst. But surely he's got to recognize my talents. Could it be I'm not the center of the universe? Could it be I got my vision out of balance? I take my place against the wall for God to do his worst. But surely he's got to recognize my talents. I'm one of four children. I live in a small building. In the city's skyline vision, I lie hidden. And from a bird's eye view, I'm just a spot in a game of connect the dots and I'm invisible to astronauts. Most have never heard my name and more never will. So till I'm pushing up daffodils on grassy hills, I'll keep peering over the top of my spectacles to find a weak spot in death's slimy tentacles. No, I could never be the center of the universe. I'm just clay telling the potter that he missed a trick. I take my place against the wall for God to shoot me first, but even this usurper gets a second chance to submit. I could never be the center of the universe. I'm just clay telling the potter that he missed a trick. I take my place against the wall for God to shoot me first. But even this usurper gets a second chance to submit. It's bizarre. It's strange. We are not the center. There we go. However, there is one who is the center. And in this prayer, very clearly, 
God, Jesus puts God right there in that place. And actually, the Lord's Prayer is not an isolated, let's just say, everyone's kind of like, whoa, what the heck? Anyway, I'll just do that later just for fun. Not dozy anymore. It's all right. <laughs> it's, uh, the Lord's Prayer is not just an isolated incident in the Bible of this sort of thing, of putting God right in the middle. No, actually, this prayer is typical of perhaps the strongest theme that runs through the entire Bible from cover to cover. If you were to ask, what is the Bible about? Well, one of the main themes is this, the centrality of God in absolutely everything. Let's just do a quick skate through the Bible to see that. Let's start at the beginning. Let's go to the end. Let's look in the middle. How does that happen in the Bible? Let's start right at the start then. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. Did you know that at the beginning of the things, God is central? Genesis 1.1 says, In the beginning, God. God created the heavens and the earth. It doesn't say at the beginning of God's revelation to us, like in a kind of, uh, is it Rudyard Kipling who ever did those sort of stories? This is the account of how human beings came around. It doesn't say that. It's in the beginning, God. We're not there at the beginning. The, the, the God's revelation to us is not built around our felt needs or our dreams. We're not even present at the beginning. There's only one being that's present, God. He is the only reality All the things that subsequently appear then come from him. God is the epicenter of creation. Listen, history does not revolve around me and it does not revolve around you. That might sound funny, but history doesn't revolve around human beings at all. It revolves around God. As he began history, as he set the ball rolling, in the beginning God, it's all about him, God is central at the start. Then let's go right from the beginning. Let's go right to the end then and see what we find at the end. In the Bible, you've got Genesis at the beginning. You've got Revelation at the end. Now, I imagine that uh, around this room, we've had different experiences of the book of Revelation. I'm sure most of you, if you're a Christian, have dipped in. But you probably, with various degrees of puzzlement, this very metaphorical, very symbolic uh, book of the Bible. And while there's mysteries in there, there, there is some incredible clarity as well. And the clarity that we can get without, if we get rid of the kind of beast with horns coming out of the sea and all that sort of stuff, it's very clear that the message of Revelation is, it's a, it's a vision of what will happen at the end of things. And the message is that when Jesus returns, Jesus will return one day, and he is going to make everything new. He'll be, ch- he'll be the champion for all the things that go on in history that we don't understand. Jesus will be victorious in those things, and he'll come and he'll make everything new. And there'll be a time when his children, those who've chosen to follow him in our lives, will live with him forever on this new earth under the new heavens, okay? And that's in the book of Revelation, right at the end of things, okay? Um, now, in the end of the book, Revelation 22, verse 5, you, you, might, you might, might be wondering, now, wonder what it would be like to live with Jesus in the new heavens and new earth. wonder what that would be like. Well, John gives us a, a little glimpse of that, a little detail, which is fascinating in Revelations twi- Revelation 22, verse 5. This is what he, he says. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light. There's a little detail. So any, uh, anyone wants to start a, a torch-selling business in heaven, you know, probably a bad idea. Um, but there's probably more going on here than that. For us, cosmically speaking, the center of our solar system is obviously the sun, isn't it? We all know that. Everyone, I've got that right. I just want to check. Not a cosmologist. The sun, AD? Yeah, oh, good. 
glad that. The center of the universe is the sun. It sets our orbit as a planet. It provides us with warmth and light and energy. It's at the center of the part of the universe that we know best and the bit that we inhabit. That's how things go. We know that sort of stuff. However, at the end of time, there will be no need for the sun. It's just going to be superfluous to requirements. Why? Well, this is why. Because God will perform its function. Just think about that for a second. John, obviously, back in these days, had a limited uh, cosmological understanding of the universe around him, and he focuses on the power of illumination of the sun here. But surely, there's much more than that going on. What it means is this. It means that God, at the end of time, is going to be slap-bang at the center of everything. In the beginning, God was the epicenter of creation. At the end, he will be the center of our universe. The one who we get all of those life-sustaining things from, and in fact, the one around whom everything clearly orbits. In the beginning, God, and at the end, God. But I suppose, while we look at the two extremes, that does raise a big question of, what about the bit in the middle then? How does that work out? How should we live now? Well, funnily enough, in the beginning, God, at the end, God, and now, God, as well. If you want to look at how we should live, if you ask that question to anyone, whether they're a Christian or not a Christian, I think sooner or later, you will get an answer that comes back to the Ten Commandments. If you've ever done this before and you're having a chat about what's wrong with the world and stuff and someone just says, well, I'll tell you what, if everyone just lived according to the Ten Commandments, this world would be a much better place. Okay, and you know, oh, I didn't know you, you read the Bible. Well, I don't really, but the Ten Commandments obvious, isn't it? And um, there's a kind of feeling, it's kind of understood widely, that the moral codes that are recorded in the Old Testament that were given to Moses these thousands of years ago give us an exceptional wisdom on how to order our lives and how they should work. Well, what do they say? And again, if you were to ask your average person, they might list things like this, and they'd be correct if they did. You can find it in Exodus chapter 20 if you want to. But it's things like respect your mum and dad, don't steal, don't lie, don't kill anybody, don't cheat on your spouse, don't be jealous of what other people have. It's all very sensible, I guess, and I guess that's why many people go to this as the go-to list for how we should live our lives in, this, uh, in our lives today. However, let's imagine... I was to ask you uh, a different, completely different question. Let's move our minds from there for a second. Um, what's the top 10 at downloads and, and music uh, purchases at the moment? This really shows my age in my research here because I was thinking, I've thought of this and it was like t- top of the pops. You don't really have that anymore. But I'm sure there must be a top 10. Now, let's imagine I was to ask you and I actually knew what I was talking about here. And uh, you were to say to me, I'll tell you the top 10. And you were to list me 5 to 10. And that was it. Now, I would say, in a very real way, you kind of missed the point of my question. Because within that question, there is a certain importance given to the top of that top ten that you wouldn't to the bottom. That five to ten is interesting, but I'm more interested probably in one to four. Well, actually, for someone who answers what's the Ten Commandments, as I've just answered, they're kind of doing the same thing. Because they've just given us the bottom half. What's the top four? Well, in reverse order. Put aside a special day for God each week. Don't use God's name in vain. No images of God are allowed. Have no God before God. Don't put anything else in his place. That number one, new entry, something like that. Now, can you spot a link between those four? Is that, is that, is that split up for you? What's the links? I, hopefully this is kind of looking a bit parallel to something we've already seen. They're all about God. How do we live today? Well, at the top of the charts, all of the most important things are about God. 
Listen, the clearest outline of our moral responsibilities as human beings makes it clear that God should be our primary central concern when considering what to do. And this is very important. What we do, what, what we do our actions affect him. How they affect him is more important than how they affect other people. I'll say that again. How our actions affect God is more important than how they affect other people. Again, ruminate on that. Think on that. That's massive. Let's make it a little bit starker for you. Let's imagine there are two people who've both lived a morally flawed day. Okay, and each of them are going to bed, and they're sleeping in different places, very different people. And as they just drift off, they're reflecting on their moral failures that day. And so you've got person one, and this person's a lady, and she's reflecting on her day. And she comes to the conclusion, just as she's going to sleep, that on that day, she's thought solely about one thing. And that one thing is the new car that she's planning to buy. As she thinks about her day drifting off into the land of Nod, she's, uh, she realizes she's done overtime at work that day to pay for that car. She spent all of her lunch break kind of checking out whether it's still on the website. She wanted making some calls just to inquire about that car. She's got home. She started buying some accessories on eBay just before bed, some driving gloves, fluffy dice, the whole works. It's all about the car. And because of this, she's forgotten to do some other things. The washing hasn't got done. She forgot to phone her mum. It was her mum's birthday. Oh, no, what a blunder. Um, However, she also realizes this. She's not thought about God once in that whole day. She's not worshipped him. She's not thanked him. She's not asked him for help for anything. Actually, if she's been honest, God hasn't crossed her mind once in that whole 24-hour period. And then she falls to sleep. That's her day of moral failure. Let's think of person number two now. As they're going to sleep, they reflect on a very different day. um, As they realize, for one reason or another, they have murdered someone in cold blood that day. Got two people. We understand our two people. Now here's the question: According to the Ten Commandments, which one has done worse in that day, morally speaking? Surely, if we're taking this seriously, we've got to come to the conclusion that actually, this lady over here, she's kind of broken one and two. She hasn't even thought of God. She's replaced God with a car in her mind. The focus of her attention has not been on the one who she was designed to focus on but on a lump of metal. She broke one and probably two as well. This was only, they only broke number six. I mean, no one, if you get the top ten, no one cares about six. I mean, come on, one and two. <laughs> now, I agree, it's a little bit, uh, I'm being a bit silly in a, in a sense. It's a bit silly to compare sins in this way. But whatever way you look at it, I want to shake you out of something that is an unnatural position that we have. And that is a human-centered perspective on the universe. We need to be shaken out of this to realize how things really are. God is at the center of everything. How you act towards him, what you do and don't do towards him, is more important than how you react towards anyone or anything else. Now listen, don't misunderstand me. Killing people is bad. Good, just checking. Everyone's got that. Really good. Uh, Stealing from people is bad. Abusing people is bad. Actually, there's only one reason why those things are really bad. And that's because the one who is at the center values those people and and made them in his image. Genesis 1.27, that human beings were made in God's image. That they carry something of the value of the ultimately valuable one in the universe. And therefore, we shouldn't 
hurt people, we shouldn't lie to people, we should treat them with value, we should love them, but only because there's one at the centre who values them. God's centrality does not just shine through commandments one to four, it shines through every single one of them. All of our morality, all of our behaviour revolves around him. If you're not a Christian here, and you've, uh, you've heard the Christian message before, and the, particularly the bit, the, the most controversial bit, there are lots of bits of the Christian message, you think, yeah, yeah, I like that bit, I like that bit. But the, probably the most controversial bit is that people, every single one of us, we're sinners, and we need saving and you've heard it and you think, I just don't get it. I just don't understand. I mean, I understand the words you're saying, but listen, I, I, I'm okay. I, 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 I know I hurt people. I do things that are bad to people every now and again. But you know, everyone does a bit. I'm doing okay towards other people. And that must be what you mean by sin. Well, actually, maybe you haven't got it because you're thinking in terms of your moral obligations solely towards other people. Listen, for every one of us, there is a far greater moral obligation on us. And it's an obligation to honour the one who deserves all honour. It's to respect the one who deserves all respect. It's to give all that we can to the glory of the one who objectively deserves all the glory. And listen, when we don't put him into that number one slot in our lives, maybe we swap him for other gods, you know? We're doing something so perverse and so against the natural order of things that in a very, very real way, we are committing the worst possible offense that we could commit. The good news of Christianity is that we can be forgiven even from that. Even from dethroning the God of heaven in our hearts, we can be forgiven. Because the God who deserves everyone to serve him came down to this planet not to be served, but as he said, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus Christ, God in human form, died on the cross to pay our punishment so that we could be forgiven from our sins. If you choose to trust Jesus with your life, that forgiveness can be yours, even today. You can restart to rebuild your life around the one who you were designed to have at the center of your life because he's at the center of everything. The final thing to say as we just on this survey of God's centrality everywhere is a, is a note about purpose because let's not get caught too much about imagery about location. Where is God? Well, he's at the middle. Or where the sun is? I don't, I don't know. No, what do we mean by that? Well, because he's the center of the universe, God is also the purpose of the universe. You know, on Alpha the other week, we started, started with the easy question. Our Alpha course has got a bit postgraduate recently. What's the meaning of life? It was on our table. Everyone was like, whoa, hey, what's going on? That's a big question. Actually, we got into this conversation. What's the meaning? Why are we here? What's the purpose? Actually, my take on that was the purpose is God. We kind of went around the houses a little bit to get there, but we did get there eventually over our pancakes. Romans eleven thirty six. Paul writes this. From him, him being God, from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. What does it mean? It means everything that is, comes from God. It was his idea. Okay, it's from him. It was also made through him. He was the agent of creation. More than that, 
everything that exists also flows to him as well. It goes to him. There is a purpose to the universe, and that purpose is God. Everything that exists, exists for his glory. What's glory? Well, glory is, to, if we glorify God, is we elevate him. We make him look good. If, you, uh, if you're a PR person for someone or a company, you, you, you act for the glory of that person or company. We're PR people, Bible uses the word ambassadors, for God. We're here to glorify him. Everything that exists, exists for his glory, to make him look good. Isaiah 43, verse 6. There are many verses where we could see this. This is why we were created. This is what it says. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth, everyone who is called by my name, who I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. God made you for his glory. That's your purpose. Now, I would understand fully if as our minds are whirring around that, some of our minds come to the thought, wait a minute, isn't that incredibly selfish? If a person was to talk like that, we wouldn't think more of them for that. We'd think much less of them. Because actually selflessness is one of the highest ideals we could aspire to and want other people to aspire to. Any God who could create an entire universe simply for his glory, isn't he just a bit of a big head? That's a fair objection. We need to address that. But there's a mistake that's been made in that objection, a comparison that's not correct. To say, just because any human being who acted like that would be a big head does not follow that therefore God would. Because actually, the problem is this. Any human being, whether it be me or Steve or Adi or whoever, if we were to say suddenly, I am single-mindedly existing for my own glory... Yeah, you too, you do okay, it's looking good, but you know, I still think for any of us, that would be silly. Silly is a funny word. Okay, let's put it more stark. We would be fools to live like that. But actually, it wouldn't necessarily be a problem with uh, selfishness. It would be a case of the fact that our claims were simply false. I am living for my glory, I'm at the centre. Well, the problem is, I'm not at the centre. I don't deserve that position. Whoever we were, Steve Jobs... Nelson Mandela, Oprah Winfrey, Stephen Fry, whoever, however skilled, however talented, however successful, how really could any of us ever claim to be worth more than anybody else? I mean, we couldn't, surely. To live like that would be living a lie. That's the thing, I think, that gets us when we see people who are very arrogant. It's like, well, it's not true. You're putting forward an image that just is, is false to us. However, what if there was one who is actually better than others? Surely then it would be perfectly appropriate for that individual to live and to act for their own glory. That would simply be common sense. It would also be entirely right that they demanded that from others. Because by doing so, all they'd be trying to do, really, is to get others to live for what's best. I think that's the phrase that has helped me with this most, to live for what's best. Because surely... All of us, we want to live for what's best, don't we? Parents here, don't you want your kids to live for what's best? Let's imagine my little girl, Hope, she's three, comes up to me and says, Dad, I have decided I am going to give my life for the goldfish. The goldfish now is at the centre of everything I will do and I will be living and breathing and doing everything for that goldfish and for the good of the goldfish. 
you know what? It might, be a, it might be a sweet moment. It might even get a status on Facebook. Hey, look, my daughter said so. Ha, ha, ha. 100 likes, who knows? Uh, it might get that, but you know what? I would not allow her to do it. It would be, and why would I not do that? It would be a complete waste of her life. Because I knew that actually, while our goldfish is reasonably spectacular, she could give her life for something much better. She could live for much more. For God to allow us to live for any other purpose other than his glory, well, that would be to sell ourselves massively short, like allowing my daughter to live for a goldfish. Actually, for God to exist for any other reason other than his own glory would be to sell himself massively short. He's at the center and he wants to be glorified and treated at the center. Not because he's arrogant, but because he's right. And that's where he is. The Bible is very clear then. God is central to everything. This means he's the purpose of everything. He's, his purpose to glorify himself. Our purpose is to glorify him. In other words, to put it a different way, our purpose is to put the one who is at the center of the universe at the center of our lives. So let's get back to the Lord's Prayer then. In short, the Lord's Prayer is absolutely in sync with every other teaching of the Bible in this area. Who's first? God first. We're second. Yeah, now, as we'll get on to next week, I'm sure, God wants us to bring our requests for things that we want. He's interested in those things, things that we need. He wants to help us with things, protect us, bless us, provide for us. And that forms the second half of the uh, prayer. But do hold that thought for a second. It forms the second half of the prayer. Before I come to God asking for my name to be something, I ask him to make more of his name. That's first. Before I come to God to get him to support my activities and my projects, I ask him to advance his kingdom. Again, I hope it's dawning on you. If you've seen prayer before as a way to get stuff off God, that's not what Jesus is teaching us here. Look, as we pray, we should be in faith that God, that our Father will give good gifts to his children. We should be in faith for that. But the most profound blessing of all is that as we come and pray like Jesus taught us to, our minds and our hearts are realigned with reality. Our thinking for each of us has become so warped by our crooked hearts that we've started to think of ourselves and our race as the end of everything. Actually, if we commit to regularly pray as Jesus prayed, we find that slowly, incrementally, Day after day, we get straightened out and we put the center back at the center. So let's end then with a couple of practical pointers. Having had the big picture of it, how then do we actually pray like this? When we come to pray, what do we do? How do we do this to pray your name, your kingdom rather than ours? Well, firstly, and I hate to be repetitive if you were here last week, uh, I'm going to give you exactly the same application point as last week because I think it's still the same. I think God wants us to talk to us on this. Worship. We need to worship God. That's what we do. We've got three things. First one is worship. How do we pray like this? We worship him. If we're going to pray that God's name should be kept holy, that his kingdom should come, we've got to make sure when we pray, we are reminded and have on the top of our mind that he is holy and that he's the king. We need to find a way to build worship into our lives. I think we should start with this in our prayer lives. 
Listen, I've heard lots of people uh, kind of almost downgrade kind of singing worship. Let's call it that, okay? Because uh, as I said last week, I like to sing when I'm praying. Um, I even gave you a little list, didn't I? I'm not going to go that there again today. Um, singing worship, what kind of worship? You could say it. You could write poems. I mean, you could write your own psalms, whatever it is, but kind of uh, praises for God that you're, you're saying or singing in that sort of way. And I've heard some people say, well, that's not what worship is. Worship's not just the singing bit at church. Worship is our whole lives. Our whole lives are worship. And you know what? To a degree, fair enough. I see what you're saying. I would change one thing. I'd add one thing to that statement. Yeah, I know that singing a bit at church is not just worship. Our whole lives should be worship. I'd put the word should in because I don't think necessarily our whole lives are worship to God. If I just blunder around my life with Johnny Meller at the center of things, I'll probably be worshiping, but I'll probably be worshiping Johnny Meller with my decisions. I need, and we each need, to find a way in our lives to, to remind ourselves and stoke up our hearts that we're thinking God is at the center of things, he's holy, he's worthy, and in our hearts that we value and love him for that fact. Worship, actually, is the act of putting God at the center of our attention. And to pray like Jesus prayed, we need to be worshippers. Can I ask you again, like I asked you last week, have you, how do you knit together worship in your life? Times when you remind yourself about the big truths about God. You stoke the fires of your heart so that you value and appreciate and enjoy God. I'd encourage you to take advantage of our times of worship where we gather together on a Sunday. And, uh, you've got a great band here and we're all together. Take advantage of those times. Desire spiritual gifts that will help you in your worship life. I believe that the Holy Spirit uh, gives us gifts. We see them in the Bible called spiritual gifts. It's kind of terminology we often use on those things. And some of those gifts are specifically to help us worship God more. I don't know if you've noticed that. For example, the gift of tongues. The gift of tongues is a, a mysterious gift, but it's where God gives us the ability to speak a language we haven't learned to praise and worship him. It's a worship gift, really. Even the gift of prophecy. And get carried away with prophecies. I'm thinking, oh, I'm going to be Nostradamus and see the future or something like that. No, prophecy is just where God speaks to us. He communicates to us something of him. His, the ideas in his head puts them in our heads. And I find usually in the gift of prophecy, he does that to show me more about him, to help him, he worship him more. I know there'll be some people here you might say this openly, you might just have this in your head, who'd th- say that, well, I think spiritual gifts are pretty peripheral to things. They, they don't really matter. And you'll know this because maybe that's not the reason you're at Church Central. We, we, we kind of have those gifts in the service. We talk about them a bit. But you're here because of maybe the talks or because of your friends or because of the way we do evangelism or something like that. But actually, if we were to decide next week, we'd say, right, we've had a rethink of stuff. Spiritual gifts, pff, complete waste of time. We're getting rid of them, okay? It's not happening. You'd be like, well, I don't care. Just don't care. In fact, brilliant. Probably better than it was before. I, would, it would be, I imagine there would be some people here, some of you guys would think a little bit like that. And you think, wow, these things cause arguments among different Christians and they're just not very important. Now, if that's you, I've got one question for you. And it will settle, really, the application. My question is this. How's your worship life? How's your worship life? Now, if the answer is, it's absolutely fine, thanks, Johnny. I'm enjoying and reveling in the God of heaven daily and almost every moment. Well, i tell you what, fair enough. Uh, I don't know if I can say keep doing what you're doing, but you seem to be on the right track, so I'm not going to go any further with that. 
However, if your answer is, actually, I really don't enjoy worshipping God, and I find it a real chore, well, you know what? My advice for you would be to do exactly what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 14, and eagerly, earnestly, actively desire spiritual gifts. Because wherever you think about primary and secondary things, worship is central to our lives. If we do not build worship into our lives, the center will drift from the center and we will fill that place. That's not peripheral. That's primary. I challenge you, stir you up to think about how you worship and building worship into your life. It's first thing. Second thing, pray for things that promote God's name and advance his kingdom. Uh, as we said already, we said again, it's fine to pray for things for yourself. Absolutely fine. My policy is, if it's bothering me, I will bother God with it. That's my general policy. If it's on my mind, I want it on God's mind. That's okay. We come to our Father. However, if I finish my daily prayer time, and all I've prayed for is that it will be really sunny today, that I'll get a car parking space when I go to town, and that my brother will have a nice birthday, I feel that I've kind of missed the point somewhere. Probably. Maybe. Now, I want to fill my prayers by praying directly for things that promote God's name and advance his kingdom. That's what I want to fill my prayer times with. Two things I think that I would regularly go back to that I think are clearly doing these things. The first would be, I pray for the church. By that, I would actually spend more time praying for our church than any other church, but I would pray for other churches too. And I think this is a direct application of may your name be kept holy may your kingdom come because the strange thing is that God has chosen to tie his name with his people since the times of Abraham as you read the Bible he he links his reputation in with his people whether that be the people of Israel or going through history as the spirit comes to his church in a way that means if the church has a good reputation God has a good reputation If the church has a bad reputation, God has a bad reputation. Paul, uh, in Romans 2.24, is a chilling thing to a group of uh, Jewish people within the church. He was was condemning them for hypocrisy in what they were doing. He said this, God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. God has bound his name so much to his people that it could be possible to say of us as a church, God's name has been blasphemed because of Church Central. Wow, that's a responsibility. Do you know what else could be said? Could be said, God's name is glorified among the nations because of Church Central. So I pray for the church. Please pray for the church. Pray that we don't fall into sin as members in this church. Pray that we don't fall into theological error as leaders of this church. Pray that we don't fall into unbelief uh, as leaders and members of this church. Pray for us. Give us your best prayers. Because as you're praying for this church, it's not like, and that's my gang, and I want my gang to do really well. God, forget about the other gangs. My church, Church Central, come on, make us massive. That's not what we're doing. We're praying your name be kept holy. Your kingdom come through us, Lord. Because you've tied your name. We're your body, the body of Christ in Birmingham. Or one expression of that. So I pray for the church. I also pray, if I'm praying kingdom, God's name prayers, I pray for people to become Christians. I imagine many of us would do this. 
But what's your reasoning as you pray? I don't know if you reason with God. Is it like, God, please save them because at the moment they're so lost and meandering in their life. They don't seem to have a purpose at all. Do we pray for people to become Christians because of that? Yes, I I do. I think that's a good thing to pray. People's lives are purposeless. They're just wandering. What about, please, would they become a Christian so they they don't go to hell? I pray for people not to become Christians. I want it to happen because I don't want people to feel the rejection of God at the end of time. But that's not the most important reason that we pray for people to become Christians who aren't Christians. Because if someone is not a Christian, that means at the moment they are not actively glorifying God. At best, they are neglecting the one who they should honour. Probably, at worst, they're dragging his name through the mud. Daily, hourly. No, they were made to worship him. They were made to glorify him because he deserves that glory. So we pray for him. That they would join the choir that sings his praises forever and ever. Because he's worthy of all the praise. May his name be kept holy. May his kingdom come. Bring as many worshippers, Lord, as you possibly can. So prayer, we should pepper our prayers with. Prayer times with. Final thing, we listen to God as we pray. When we pray for things on our agenda, if that's what prayer was, just praying things on our agenda, well, that's pretty easy because actually we know what those things are. If they're on my agenda, I don't think, oh, what's on my agenda today? No, those things are already in my head. However, if our main priority in prayer is to pray for things on God's agenda, I would suggest it's very important that we listen to him to find out what's on his agenda. And so I, I pray, I like to just, every now and again, just stop. I am, you probably, if you know me, you'll probably be thinking this a lot of the time, but I think, I'm talking too much. I need to shut up. No one said yes, good, I'm glad. Only God thinks that. Um, so as I'm praying, I like just to sit or walk in silence for a while. Just discipline myself. I'm really silent. Nothing's happening. I need to pray something. No, no, silent. God, speak to me. I want to hear from you today, God. And that's not always just for guidance, like tell me what to do today, what decision to make. I want to know what's on your agenda today, Lord. I want to know how I should continue praying today. I want to know how, what is it at the moment that, could, that, that would be most important for your name being kept holy and your kingdom coming? As, we, as, you, you're, as you're putting aside time to pray, put aside silence. Discipline yourself to silence. Maybe in the day at times when the urge is to reach for your phone and think, oh, I've got nothing else to do. There's some really cool stuff on my phone. Just think, no, I'm not going to do it. Instead, I'm going to wait. Silence. God, anything you want to tell me to do? What's on your agenda? What can I pray for? I think as we pray, we want to put God at the center. We worship. We pray prayers for his name and his kingdom, and we listen to him. We don't pray primarily for stuff. We pray so that God can change us to understand his centrality in everything. And we need to craft our prayers in line with that. And as we pray like that, we need to allow God to realign our thinking with the way reality really is. God is at the center. I am at the edge.